Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Cole Swanson is an artist and educator based in Toronto, Ontario. Through a multidisciplinary, collaborative, and materially focused practice, he explores interspecies dynamics evolving in the current geological age. Cole has exhibited works in national and international institutions on four continents and in two-time arts fellow through Shastri Indo-Canadian Institute for his research on natural materials, miniature painting, fresco, and earth pigments. With a sustainable and access-oriented approach to creation and dissemination, Cole often engages conservationists, scientists, and social community partners to integrate advocacy, education, and live experience into the creative process. His work has been featured in several media and academic publications, and his artistic research on Toronto's double-crested Cormac colony has been featured on the celebrated program, The Nature of Things with David Suzuki. He has attended residencies in Canada, India, Brazil, and Spain, and recently contributed to an expansive survey exhibition on art, nature, and ecology at the School of Art Institute of Chicago Galleries called Earthly Observatory, curated by Giovanni Alloy and Andrew Yang. Please help me welcome Cole Swanson to the podcast. Hi, Cole. How are you today? I'm great. How's it going? It's good. It's good. I'm excited to talk to you about some of the work you're doing. I have questions and curiosities about some of your materials, especially because you're quite diverse in how you approach the creative process and materials. So this should be interesting. I know you like to work with art and nature. So why don't we talk a little bit about where that interest came from and what your love of art and nature is and how they tie together? That's probably the best place to start. I think it's a good place to start because when I was a little kid and I was growing up, I was always really interested in animals. And I remember even in high school thinking, you know, I was going to be a zoologist or an ornithologist or something in the realm of science. But I also, of course, like many kids, had a love of art and that stuck with me. So there was a bit of a duality there, I think, even in my youngest years. And as I was approaching post-secondary education, It was at a time when those disciplines were really, really separate, really siloed. So I chose the University of Guelph, actually, because of its zoology and animal science programs. But I stayed at the University of Guelph because it had a wonderful art program. So I think that's maybe where it all started. It was almost an innate love of nature and of the non-human world that I had to find space for in my respective research interests. So really, that's probably so deeply embedded in me. I always knew it, but it took several years of study and practice to figure out a way to make those worlds meaningfully come together. And you work with materials in interesting ways. 
when I was doing the research about your pieces, some of them are installation. I almost feel like you have this museum quality to the way you display work. Can you talk a little bit about how you decide what your materials are going to be? Yeah, I think, first off, very glad that you point out materiality, because I like to say that materiality is really the soul of the work that I do. And that ties into my engagements with nature really importantly. But also the fact that you mentioned museums is something that just caught me off guard, but it makes a ton of sense because while I was studying in school, I was also working in museums. And so I think my education, which, you know, at times was in science and at times was in art and at times was in museum studies, all kind of coalesced to create the practice that I have today. But it really like, I think, started to makes sense to me when I was at the University of Guelph. So I did a year in the science program there under zoology and realized very early on that the scientific method, as important as it is, wasn't really the greatest fit for me. So I turned back toward art, a profession that many of us were warned against going into by guidance counselors. And But I sort of embraced that, that idea of becoming an artist while always having this respect and I think love of the non-arts, the sciences on the periphery. So I studied at Guelph and I like to think of having the privilege of different kinds of education, which I think might have given birth to the, the different references that you talk about. So when I was in Guelph, I started in science and then I switched to art. And then in my third year of university, I had the opportunity to go to India, which is a place that I'd always wanted to go to. I had never traveled before and it was a semester abroad. So it was weird being like aware of the fact that I'd never even really been to the United States, but now I'm getting on a plane and moving to India for five or six months. So I studied in the North in a place called Rajasthan for the most part, which is a desert state and has this incredible history of art that was totally unknown to me. So, you know, like so many of us who are educated In the pre-millennial years, we never really learned anything about non-Western art, and we certainly never learned anything about Indian art. So I had the opportunity to study with some amazing artists and scholars while I was there. Dr. Rekha Bhatnagar, who is sort of a matriarch in the Jaipur arts community and who I like to call my Indian mother because I always go back to her house every trip and I stay in. I have my own room. And then also my longtime teacher, Dr. Natula Verma, who is a miniaturist and a contemporary artist. And what was so interesting about studying in India was that actually the materials that we were using in these processes, like fresco and miniature and folk art, are earthen materials a lot of the time. And they're intrinsically connected to humanity's relationship with natural systems. Mm -hmm. So it was through that first experience of actually seeing artists make their own materials by hand that I started to really question what we work with here in the Western world, which is often really commercially or industrially produced materials. We have very little awareness of where those things come from, what impacts they have on the broader world, that kind of thing. So that's really where I think the love of materiality was born. And I had multiple opportunities to kind of come back to Canada and then go back to India and keep investigating that relationship a little bit more. So I continued the study of miniature painting and fresco, but really what it turned me toward is the earth itself, like earth pigments. 
which are the sources of colors in these cosmopolitan painting traditions, and also have a really special place, I think, in the modern Indian consciousness in a post-colonial way, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was all of these Westerners that were saying, you know, anything traditional was bad. And this sort of Western modern idea was being forcibly imposed on Indian artists. And so it was the reclaiming of those age-old methods, those earthly processes that actually helped define what modern India is, which seems like a totally strange juxtaposition of ideas, but that's what made it so utterly fascinating for me. Mm-hmm. And you've returned to that. I've seen in recent, I think within the last year where you were making your own pigments again and exploring how to do that. How do you find the materials? Let's start there. <laughs> and then, yeah. Or how do you know what you're looking for? Yeah, totally. That's a great question because when you're in a place like India where the materials are very commonplace and, mm-hmm. and they're sort of in the markets, you don't really have to think much about where they come from. But, you know, when you're not in a place that has a tradition like that, well, then it takes a certain amount of research and curiosity. So actually, the love of mineral pigments is something that has followed most of my process ever since those early trips. So I've done lots of different kinds of works by focusing instead on the material itself rather than the product and the the sort of output of that work is decided in the context of where those materials are from. So the first thing I guess I do is I figure out where I am and pay very close attention to a more nuanced sense of land land and landscape. Mm -hmm. So I, I always say that most of my work is born from a relationship with things that are so present, but are so invisible to us, usually because human systems tend to push us away from seeing them, right? Like we have different values. So much of what I use from a material perspective is like in the immediate environment. So, you know, a pigment foraging trip, for instance, like one of the ones I did last year for the Gladstone Hotel, which is a project we may speak about, was literally going on walks and just looking at the ground and starting to pay attention to how the soil changes in different environments and what organisms might be influencing the color of the earth. And from there, taking samples and going into the studio and starting to refine them and separate out pigments. And some of the most incredible stuff has actually been like, considering that these paints are not just objects, they're not static, but they're actually alive. Like they're vital and they're always changing. And so what looks orange in one context, for instance, when exposed to heat or water or different elements will start to change color and take on different identities because there's millions of little microbes in there just acting and making magic. So that's kind of how it works in sort of a broad view. And of course, like each project is really intimately connected with that specific site. And so, yeah, it's really a process of curiosity and discovery. So you mentioned the Gladstone. So your pigments, were they from in and around the Gladstone itself? Or did you venture further out? Or where were you finding the materials for that particular work? Yeah, that was a really interesting project because it was actually the most in a sense, traditional I've worked in that it was a mural inside a room, inside a building, as opposed to so much of my work, which has been about being outside and sort of engaging with biosystems there. But yeah, so basically in short, the Gladstone Hotel underwent a massive renovation recently after it was purchased. And the hotel had made a commitment to showcasing the work of local artists. So 
So I proposed a project where I would explore Toronto specifically and the areas around the hotel to see what kinds of earthen media are present and then use that earthen media to create like a large scale mural piece, which, you know, visitors to the hotel would be sort of surrounded by. I had done some work previously in the area, so I knew that there were some really interesting pigments nearby. There's the Cheltenham Badlands, which is up near Caledon. Yeah, and yeah, it's an amazing place. It's so weird when you drive up to it. <laughs> it's, it's the most intense orangey red color you can see out of nowhere. <laughs> out of nowhere. And it's actually an agricultural process. So it looks ancient. It looks like this, you know, like you've driven into Montana or something. But instead, it's actually a fairly modern process comparatively. And also in the Badlands, it's that really rich red iron oxide, but it also has really peculiar green iron oxide as well in the form of green shale. So it's this really fascinating kind of furrowed landscape made of red, like you imagine the surface of Mars speckled with these bright green rocks. And so I took pigments from there. But everything else was really like quite local. So I went to High Park, which is yeah, it's a glacial ravine system. And there's amazing content actually there that I'm sure nobody even realizes is just sitting there underfoot. Yeah, I would say High Park, I've been a thousand times, but never really looked that closely. Something you said struck me about how you take some stuff that's like right in our immediate environment and sort of pay attention to it. I'm escaping the names, but the ones that you've done with the gilded bugs. How did that grow about? I mean, if anybody sees them, they're exquisite. They almost look jewel-like, but at the same time, they're bugs. <laughs> like, there's that's, a part of me that's attracted and repelling from some of them. <laughs> I love that description because that really is the kind of essence of that piece. Actually, I'm glad you brought up that work early on as well, because that was one of my turning points. I had been to art school. I had graduated in 2004 from Guelph. I had worked for probably eight years, eight to 10 years on mostly a painting practice, actually, miniature painting and things that I'd learned in India. And then I went back to school and studied art history at U of T. And I was really interested in post-humanities and kind of thinking about art and nature more seriously. And um, in the wake of all of that, I remember going home in bed after a trip to India where, you know, India is so amazing because animals and life is literally everywhere. Like you could be walking down the street at any given point in Jaipur and you might see a camel and a wild boar and a monkey and a peacock and an elephant and a wild dog and like kites. And, and that's not even an exaggeration at all. And then you come home and the Western world is so, especially here in Toronto, seems so devoid of that, like so cleansed of it. And that has a lot to do, I'm sure, with our Western idea of modernity. You know, like we like to control nature. And we like to sanction where nature exists and where it doesn't exist. But here I was like sitting in my bed, just kind of musing, I guess, and looking up and I saw the light fixture sitting above my head. It was this glass concave thing and the light was on and there was probably 25 dead flies just sitting in that fixture like a constellation. And this just light bulb turned onto my head. It was like, oh my God, I didn't even know that these things were living with me. You know, I hadn't even seen a fly in my apartment, let alone had an awareness of the fact that I had sort of kin living and dying in the same place. So that work was really powerful because 
there was all of those things you described. There was like the repulsion of seeing something like a dead house fly, you know, gathering dust. But then there was also this enormous curiosity that was born of that. Why do I think these things are gross? Well, maybe they're not really gross. Maybe it's just cultural conditioning. So I ended up collecting these flies and almost quite intuitively, I took some of my miniature painting training, which was in gilding, and I just started applying 24 karat gold to their little wings as almost like a memoriam or a honorific act. And it's funny when you add gold to something because... You know, maybe it's our capitalist impulse or maybe it's our long historical association with divinity. But all of a sudden, people were in love with these flies. They just found them so beautiful and precious. And they also had that repulsion, too. It was like it was like there was this internal fighting happening. And I thought, that's interesting. So for five years, I collected every insect I found in and around my place or any place I was staying. And I think I did an installation, which is called Monument quite simply, with 250 different insects, all gilt with gold and then threaded together with gold silk in the patterns that I found them. So it was this very meditative, delicate work, but it really changed things for me, actually, my practice. It really made me turn toward those kinds of organisms, those kinds of systems. Yeah, it's fascinating. Because now I think about when you mentioned the light fixture, like how many times have I looked up and went, oh, Or, you know, you look over and there's a spider crawling down the wall and you're like, it's part of your environment, but you're right. Like it's, we're conditioned not to notice them. I'm an avid gardener. So bugs are important to the garden. The whole idea that the garden thrives when there's certain species in there. So it's fascinating to me that you've honed in on that as your practice. Yeah, I think like with You know, this kind of work, you also become very aware of the hierarchies that we have set in nature. We do. We have lots of hierarchies. I mean, of course, the modern Western world has hierarchies with everything. You know, certain races have enjoyed extreme privilege over others and genders, as we know, have and sexes have enjoyed certain privileges. And and those hierarchies are so deeply embedded in modern society, but they also extend into the natural world. So, you know, one of my projects that I've been undertaking for the last three years is working with the double-crested cormorant colony. We have the largest colony in the, in the world, arguably, of these black birds, but they're hated for all the reasons why people tend to hate things like black animals. And by extension, you know, long histories of racial discrimination that certainly have ruined the lives of generations of human beings but have also actually meaningfully impacted the natural world on the ground. You know, that seems like a very bold claim to make, but ravens and crows in Toronto were totally eradicated because of religious anxieties over their associations with evil. And blackness in general has been problematic for things like black bears and even black dogs and cats are not adopted out of shelters. So it's amazing, actually, when you start to really question those hierarchies that we put in place, both within and beyond the human world, and what impacts they have materially on the ground. Of course, all of the organisms that I'm talking about have an important place. But so many of us would feel happier or at least more relieved to never really encounter them anymore. So the work is kind of about that too, right? It's about bringing visibility to these things and maybe representing the culture so that we understand what's at stake and perhaps how to move forward with a different line of questioning. 
Yeah, I find that interesting. You're bringing up a lot of different points here that my brain's going, wow, like there's so much to unpack. Do you get pushback from people when they come up against some of their own biases or maybe even prejudice about how they conceive the natural world? Or do you find people are open to the work that you're creating? I have found that my audience anyway whether that be physically in a gallery space or online, has been quite open, which surprised me, to be honest, because I did one very large body of work over several years, kind of looking at what I call commodity species, because they are like cattle and honeybees, for instance, which I don't think of as commodities exclusively now, sort of like the work has forced me to really uncouple those ideas and think more critically about these animals. But you know, I was spending a ton of time working with and talking about cattle. And I thought people were going to really freak out (laughs) because in my shows, I had byproduct everywhere. Pits of sugar that are white because they're filtered through the bone char of cattle or skins that are stretched onto the wall or cattle stomachs that I've preserved or even pigment that I've made from the bones. And so I thought for sure I was going to be really upsetting communities of activists, people who actually I share a lot. I share a similar ideological bent, but because the work is an acknowledgement of these nuanced systems, mm-hmm. I think people are actually quite receptive to it. Even if they are, say, vegan, mm-hmm. they may not necessarily be as horrified by the work because I think the spirit of the work is actually about revealing those truths and demonstrating the almost the enormously complex layers of connection between not only animal bodies and our bodies, but also all levels of our society. You know, I always say like, people don't even know that there's animal fat in the bills that we carry around in our pocket, like cash has animal body in it. Mm -hmm. And that's the extent to which this relationship with the so-called commodified animal, it's almost in everything. And I say that, with some lived experience, I suppose, because I used to live and work in India, but I also lived and worked in Taiwan, where people have a very different relationship with consumption, you Mm -hmm. know, where you go to a market and you see a live animal and you choose it and it gets killed in front of you and you take it home. And people have reconciled that. We don't see that. Yeah, we don't. And we don't want to see it, right? It's all about invisibility and abstraction. Mm -hmm. So the work is about sort of taking that abstraction and reworking it and representing it so that it becomes less abstract actually. And I think people respond very favorably to that. That's amazing because when you were talking, I just thought, yeah, there is that potential where people could come and be quite upset about it, but it's the materiality. I think the way you present your work and how you talk about it, it makes a lot of sense that we need to stop and examine how we live our life in this society. So that's amazing. I know you're sort of moving in a new direction as of September of 2022, would you like to talk about that and how it ties together, like all the things you've been talking about, your work, your life, your interests in art, nature? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. It's new news, actually. So I know I shared it with you just before we we were on our session today. I decided that after working independently And I'm also, I'm a professor, I should say. So I do teach. I work in academia. I'm a professor of art foundation and visual and digital arts at Humber College. And I've been working there since 2012, 2013. 
And I also had some teaching history at Ontario College of Art and Design University. So I've been sort of steeped in the academic world. But it came to me recently to sort of move my own research a little bit more deeper. And so I applied to the Environmental Studies Interdisciplinary Program at York University, the PhD program, and uh, was accepted, which is great. And that's just been, it's been a really interesting journey, I suppose, because, and I'm sure many artists can relate to this, for a long time, I thought, should artists have to do that? It's so competitive now. Do we really need master's degrees and do we need PhDs to be artists? Like, is that really what's going on or is this just some weird capitalist ploy? But for me, I realized that I was engaging in multi-year research projects that had collaborative and interdisciplinary structures. I had been working with conservation authorities and scientists and community members on several large projects in the last few years. And sort of juggling all of that work independently. Mm -hmm. So like conceptualizing it, researching it, putting the projects into motion, of course, in partnership with wonderful people. But I have a colleague who I've been working with now for three years on the Cormorant Colony, Dr. Gail Fraser, who's a leading avian ecologist. And we were like, this research is too rich to sort of leave out of that kind of higher academic space. Like there's room here to take this farther. And so for me, it was like, how can you imagine art becoming a really, truly meaningful contributor to research? And specifically, why is art important at this time? You know, when we talk about nature, And, you know, if I might muse just briefly on that, I, in my work with cormorants, this bird that everybody loves to hate, I've really seen the limits to which mainstream media is able to report in a nuanced way on these topics and the inability or the unwillingness of the general public to accept science and its assertions in the avenues of ecology specifically. Because science is saying like, This is kind of a disastrous scenario. We need to be more responsible. We need to change, you know, what we do in order to better our ecological situation. And that requires a lot of sacrifice and people don't really want that. So it's very easy right now for people to kind of ignore science. And so while I don't think art is necessarily a cure for that, it is another way of connecting with the more than human world. And people have... I think, an inherent curiosity around art and the experience of it to be able to then participate meaningfully in those discussions. So that's really why I've enrolled in this program. It's to see what art can do for myself, but to also access all the amazing resources that universities have to offer in this way. I think it's interesting that you're going into an interdisciplinary. It's not art focus. You're going to be working with all these different people how do they respond to your project and your ideas? Like, do you find they're questioning you as the artist or are they receptive or is it a mix of everything? I think if you would have asked me that question 15 years ago when I was earlier in my studies, I would have had a different answer for you. I think it was people working in certain disciplines were much more, were much less receptive. Mm -hmm. But now I think people are genuinely interested. And part of that is also that, The whole idea of art as a discipline being this sort of like (laughs) magical kind of flaky thing where, you know, it's just cartoon character like people are sort of in studios getting moments of inspiration or whatever. 
that fantasy is has maybe given way to the understanding that artists are really, really hardworking, very research-oriented people, especially those who work in the area that I'm looking at. There's just Canada alone, even the GTA alone, has an incredible array of dedicated environmental artists. So it's a moment now, probably because we're all hearing about the state of the natural world and feeling genuine anxiety about it. But it's also, as I said, like some artists have made really, really meaningful contributions to this stuff. And now when I approached the department, I approached it with a proposal to work with the Cormorant Colony and to continue my collaboration with Gail Fraser. And they're incredibly receptive to it because I think in part they've seen earlier works, bodies of work that I've done, but also because this is a kind of program where bridges are being made. We're really making bridges between disciplines and between communities and between methods that is starting to make people feel a bit more optimistic. I don't want to speak on behalf of the department, but I would like to think that's why (laughs) they've given me this opportunity. Well, that's very exciting. So congratulations. And I can't wait to see what comes out of that. Yeah, me too. Thank you. (laughs) You've also done um, some other projects. There's one that was just recent, The Hissing Folly. Can you talk about that piece? It's got that installation-based nature to it. Maybe describe it for anybody who hasn't seen it. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorite projects I've actually ever worked on. I feel like lately I've been saying that about a bunch of things, but maybe that's just because I feel pretty blessed to have been doing what I've been doing in recent years. But particularly that project, I had connected with Sandy Saad, who is a curator. We had worked together in a very small capacity years ago when I was making miniature paintings. And so maybe it was ironic that we kind of connected on the idea of my doing a massive installation rather than tiny little paintings. But she had been curating the loft gallery space at the Visual Arts Center of Clarington, which is in Bowmanville. And that is historically, it's a cream of wheat mill building. So it was part of a larger sort of agricultural complex where barley and agricultural like crops were basically harvested for various industries. And the top floor of this building is an unrestored space. So it's over a hundred years old and it's got these beautiful old beams and And the challenge curatorially was to make an artwork that connects with community. And that's kind of it, you know, which is enormously broad. But one of the things that I thought about is the way that this space, which was used for agriculture, it almost creates a dialogue between different plant systems and the way that humans interact with them. So imagine that there was all of this wild space that is then felled to produce agricultural crop. And so there's a commodity system kind of in there. And here I am now working in it after it's been long retired and turned into an art center. And so I thought, what are other species that have sort of echoes of that action? And I quite literally Googled, you know, what is the most tense or invasive species in the area? Because I was quite curious. And the same thing came up over and over and over again. It was Phragmites, which is this really tall, invasive variant of common reed. So it's just a grass, to be honest. But this Eurasian variant changes quite significantly when it's here versus when it's in Europe. 
And so sometime over the last 200 years, this grass has made its way over here and it's created swaths of what's called a monoculture, which is a highly, highly concentrated plant species that's outcompeting all of its native variants or native variants of Phragmites, but also all of these other species around. So, you know, that was like, okay, what can I do with Phragmites? And I'm also very interested in the whole invasive versus native thing, because there's a lot of kind of problematics in there, you know, in terms of the terminology and how we, again, create these hierarchies, like we want native things, we don't want invasive things. And sometimes we ascribe invasiveness to things that aren't like cormorants. But what I learned is like this monoculture is really, truly something else. Like it's so adaptive and it grows 2.5 times bigger and far more than anything we have here. So where it grows, nothing else grows. And so to sort of sum up my concept, I had learned that this grass is used in thatching since the Bronze Age. And thatching is a sort of like method of creating rooftops, right? And I like the idea of thinking about, again, the material itself as a building medium, but also a site for community intervention. So we organized a community harvest alongside the gallery, and we cleared an area of biologically sensitive land in Fixins, which is in Whitby. This is a marshland that had, half of it had sort of been completely decimated by Phragmites, or the other half, which was just separated by a little road, still had um, sort of a more biodiverse landscape. So we chopped tons of it down and we rolled them into traditional bundles called yelms. And I brought them into the space and I created like a monument to them, basically a giant pyramid that goes up into the rafters. And people were willing to come on out and help you just gather all the material. And I mean, part of that is the sort of like, it's giving the community credit, right? Like I have to ask, you have to fish the, there are lots of things I'll say on this project that I thought when I first pitched the concept, I was like, this could go off the rails at any point. First off, I've never thatched a thing in my damn life. So I don't even know how to do that, let alone get permissions, right, from the conservation authorities to even do this work. So yeah, there was a lot of different kinds of conversations that had to happen which I think people interested in the bio arts realm might be quite curious about. Like people ask me all the time, like, how did you even get to do this? So I went to the conservation authority with the curator, the Central Lake Ontario Conservation Authority, and we partnered with Diana Shermit, who's an invasive species specialist. And she taught us, how do you harvest this? How do you do it in a way that doesn't risk spread? So there was almost like an educational component right from the very beginning. And once we had figured out that we had a site that could use the work, and I should say that just clear-cutting it isn't going to solve the problem. I mean, they're much more difficult to get to manage than that. But it does provide some relief. Really, it was about creating visibility, right? Again, it's this thing that you see everywhere on the highways. You know, if you just look and see these tall, beautiful fronds, people love them because they're gorgeous, but they're everywhere. So now by getting the community involved, now people in the community start to know about them and then they start to spread the word. And that was really like the spirit of the piece. So it was amazing. Like the gallery staff, I think, worked hard to assemble a team, but we went out over two days or three days in the mud and the cold. And it was like, it was October, I think, in the first one and then December in the second. And I mean, it was messy work. Like it fragmented of water. So we were in like hip waders and it was freezing cold and people did it. 
So, I mean, that just shows you that people do care. Yeah. And that they do want to get involved. Well, that's great, though. I mean, you're bringing up a lot of interesting conversations around this piece, even because I think of there was discussions about plants, like this is a weed and this is not a weed and this is evasive and this is taking over. And then all of a sudden it's like we need them for butterflies or we need it for this. And it's amazing how when we start to learn what the plant does and how it actually affects the ecosystem that we start to think about what's around us. So like you were saying, I've passed those plants a thousand times and wouldn't have given them a second thought. <laughs> so yeah, that's that thing. Like it's ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. So it's invisible. Yeah. It's just like the house flies, right? In your house. Well, as we wrap up, I have five quick rapid fire questions for you. Okay. <laughs> so no planning, but I just thought this is a great way for us to sort of pull everything together. So Thinking about your own practice, what's the best advice you've ever been given as an artist? Oh, that's a big one. You know what the best advice, and I pass this on to my students, and I really truly believe it, is that in order to get out of your head, you have to just start doing something. Stop living in your head and do something, literally anything. It could be start a painting that you don't care about. It could be start weaving something. It doesn't matter, but action like that embodied knowledge brings about clarity. That's great. If you were to be invited to a dinner party and you could sit beside one artist, past or present, anybody in the world, who would that be and why? I would say this is, I don't know, like just off the top of my head, right? Because I haven't really thought about, I love so many artists. And in fact, I'm so inspired by a lot of non-artists. But right now, David Altmage, who's from Montreal, I just love his material practice. And I think he's really cute. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good reason. (laughs) If you were to choose one of your pieces to leave behind as a legacy for people to look at 100 years from now, only one, which of those pieces would you choose? It's so funny that you asked that because so many of my pieces are set up and then they disappear already. So they're almost already, so many of them already don't exist. But if almost the story of them or the documentation of them could live on, I think it might be the folly, actually. Because it's just, there was so much learning and growth and camaraderie that happened. You know, I even thatched it with my brother-in-law, whose father was a thatcher in England. Like, there was so many connections. So, yeah, that piece, I think, is really special. Okay. What's the worst comment or advice you've ever received? Oh, I remember a professor told, I'll never forget this, told me I had a meeting with her about the possibility of going into my master's when I was in my undergrad. And she said to me, you know, some people aren't designed for grad studies. Some people are just designers or illustrators. And I remember thinking, well, it really actually kind of stopped me in my tracks. Mm -hmm. And that's not really advice so much as it was judgment. But I think what it was is that who you are, like truly is something so complicated, nobody external to you can make those decisions for you. And of course, you can go about your story at lots of different points in your life. It doesn't all have to happen in a straight line. So I really, truly believe that. And I thought what she said was really daft. (laughs) I like that. There is no straight line. You're right. Like things weave. So, and then if you were to give one piece of advice, this may tie into your your first one, but one piece of advice or wisdom, or even leave an emerging young artist with a thought 
to take away as they start their journey? What would that be? I suppose one thing that I've learned actually through the different forms of study and the different kinds of mentorship I've had over the years is that you can learn something from almost anybody you work with and to always remain open and receptive to that. You know, I've had teachers in formal education. I've had gurus in India. I've had scientists I've collaborated with. And, you know, when I look back on all of those relationships, I can tell you what I took away from all of those. And the only reason I can do that is because I went into those relationships with an openness. And I would really say for any young artist, even if you're not digging what you're learning, even if you're not getting along with the person that you're in the room with, ask yourself, what can I take away from this? And I think it will bear fruit. Yeah, that's great. Actually, that's fantastic advice just for life in general. Well, thank you so much, Cole. This has been so enlightening. I feel inspired by like what you've done with the natural world. I actually want to go out and start thinking like, what kind of materials can I collect that come from that natural process? So thank you again. That warms my heart. And thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful platform. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.